0: The Ringer's Charles Holmes and co-host Grace Spellman present the most notorious new podcast in the industry, The Ringer Music Show. Every Tuesday, they'll bring you the latest news, the hottest takes, and the deepest reporting about the wild world of music and the chaotic industry that creates it. Check out The Ringer Music Show exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus,
1: Media Consumers, Brian Curtis, and David Shoemaker here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. This is the press box. It's Friday. That means we answer listener mail. And David, I wanted to put a piece in front of you right from the top here because it's something you and I have thought about in various ways over the years. hmm The story is called The Dying Art of the Hatchet Job. Yeah. By Dorian Linsky. Great, great title. Mm-hmm. And we will excuse Dorian Linsky for using the Ted Lasso discourse as his peg (laughs) because that, that is banned from the press box forever. There is no discoursing about Ted Lasso here, but, but he uses that as a way into a really interesting topic. Let me read you a little bit and we'll get into this here. Dorian Linsky writes the new Statesman writer, Sarah Manavis, steeled herself for a backlash. Quote, it's always fun to post an article that you know beforehand will get very badly ratioed, she tweeted, after linking to a piece in which she called Apple TV's feel-good soccer sitcom Ted Lasso the most overrated show on TV. And so it came to pass. Three weeks later, she tweeted, despite spending most of my career writing about online radicalization and disinformation, I've never received more abuse than when I criticized... Ted Lasso. Now, Manavis, David, is not the only person who was hit for writing a hatchet job. In May, the critic and friend of the press box, Scott Tobias, used the 20th anniversary of the movie Shrek to write a piece calling Shrek terrible. Here is Linsky writing again. I found the reaction to Tobias's piece extraordinary. Tobias was called at best a cynical, click-hungry contrarian, at worst, a twisted, misanthropic snob. Shrek fans disjoyless Chud Guardian critic who called the film funny, unfunny, and overrated, reported the rap. <laughs> Linsky writes there used to be an understanding among readers that any worthwhile critic, whether it be William Hazlitt, Kenneth Tynan, or Pauline Kael, would need to hate as well as to love. Now critics are often up against readers who resist the very notion of criticism. What do we think about that endangered species known as the hatchet job?
2: Oh, man. Well, I mean, the hatchet job has had a number of uh, peaks uh, over the past century or so. Uh, But, you know, we've (laughs) talked on the show before about its most recent, I guess, uh, apex um, sort of personified in one Dale Peck, who was at some if not if not from the beginning um, of his c- critical career at some point, just very deliberately writing hatchet jobs for their own sake, either seeking out subject matter for which, uh, which was, you know, hatchet ready, uh, or maybe just being a slightly, a, a, of a more of a performative hatcheteer on whatever uh, subject he was assigned. Yes. Um, you know there's pushback against that at the time and it, and it and and i think that you know sober individuals can probably find a common ground on to what degree that was uh that was you know necessary slash, or or versus unnecessary in the world of criticism and uh and also you know to what degree it's okay just to like publish performative criticism in that way i, I don't think that I probably take a pretty extreme view. I think that what he was doing at the time was was, in some ways, a necessary corrective because you know I think that his perception, his argument was or would have been that that reviews were too nice. You know they were that they were getting too cushy compared to where where they had been in whatever glory day he would have pointed back to. And I don't disagree with that in a vacuum. Um, what we're dealing with now is a more is probably a more extreme version of what peck would have perceived but uh, but in some ways it seems like the like the stakes are much lower and maybe that's because we've been beaten down by just this is the state of the as the kind of new state of play and it doesn't seem as problematic but you know you and i have sort of been present for a lot of this evolution in real time i mean when when bill started grantland he pretty quickly pivoted from calling andy greenwald a tv critic to a tv connoisseur right or whatever i don't remember if that was exactly the term but it was he was there to appreciate good television that's what that's what made uh that's that's what you know readers wanted to read and that's what this you know great writer and andy wanted to be writing about not just like you know 800 word takedowns of whatever new cbs sitcom was out right
1: (laughs) and andy's interesting right because he can he can connoisseur it up with the best of them, but he can also swing the club. I mean, Andy's the guy who didn't like true detective season one.
0: Sure. You know, if
1: you listened and you listened to the watch and Andy is, you know, Andy is, has his tastes, right. And he has things he likes and things he doesn't like, but you're right. It is an interesting moment. And and to go back to Dale Peck for just one second, part of what he is, he, he stands in such stark relief in his era because it's the era of the believer. Am I getting my dates right here? which published nice reviews about books mm-hmm. by and large. There's this kind of push. There had been a pushback against negative criticism. So he's standing out there. This, I feel the, the whole critical terrain and media terrain right now is completely different than that period. Um, and there are several factors that Linsky cites in this story. I'll give you a few of them and tell me uh, which one of these hits you. One is the shrinking number of pages. Mm -hmm. And Linsky's argument is, look, if you have enough room in your book review to review 20 books, you know, you can have a mix of tough reviews and nice reviews. But if you have room to review three books, which, you know, in my L.A. Times, when they have the book section on the weekend, I sometimes see, are you really going to use one of those to have just like a, an absolute hatchet job? Or are you going to spotlight things you like and that your critics like to put them in front of you? So part of it is just an inventory.
2: I think you can spin that out into a larger commentary on the, you know, critical industry, the review industrial complex, whatever you want to say. It. There's fewer pages in general. And there's a smaller and ever-shrinking, probably, audience for the to, to consume such things. So... If you wanted to write, you know, a giant takedown of Jonathan Franzen's *The Corrections* when it came out, that would exist in a sea of positive reviews that presumably most of your audience would have also read, right? And since there are fewer, fewer pages of criticism in general, book reviews, whatever else, movie reviews, and fewer people consuming it, then yeah, I mean, if you're the if you're whatever, I mean, fill in the blank, you know, periodical. If you you might be publishing the only review of a book that someone's reading. Wouldn't you rather dedicate that space towards a energetic, positive review of something someone's really wanted to write instead of like taking the pose of of dissent because you think you need to correct the perception of something? There's no perception of anything to be corrected. Tell people what it is, and and I you know you understand why someone would tend towards writing about something they're excited about instead of something they're like agitated about.
1: Linsky has a related point to that, too, which he says in the world of music, when most albums don't make money, it is understandable for critics to pull their punches sort of related to what you just said, Mm -hmm. because if everybody's making money off art or a lot of people off books and movies and albums and things, I think then as a critic, you feel like, hey, that person made a lot of money. So I'm going to say exactly what I want. I'm going to go after it with abandon. But if it is at least in music criticism, a situation where like, wow, all albums are, a lot of albums are tanking, then you're going to be like, what what am I criticizing here? Something that didn't make this person any money anyway. And I think there is, and of course, that's not a hard and fast rule. People criticize independent films, small films, everything all the time. But I do think there's some kind of relationship there between the artists making money and the critics sort of feeling, hey, I am fully energized to go after you that success breeds hatchet jobs <laughs> yeah, because they're just riper targets
2: yeah it's completely true um it, there's I, I mean the the pulling the punches comment i think is exactly right i mean it's talking about uh, you know uh, when you when you look back at some of the great kind of literary hatchet jobs they're taking on like authors of great esteem you know people with with long careers who are maybe uh, have a stinker of a book or a stinker of an album or whatever mm-hmm. um, and and also you know when you you know if you look back at the Dale Peck era a lot of the books that, w- that would have been attacked seem to be sort of part of it, it was more I guess the attack is partly on the publishing world right it's like you were putting a lot of you were building up this book or this writer to be the next Hemingway and I want everyone to know that that is not the case <laughs> <laughs> right and in a world in which there are there are fewer and fewer well books for sure but fewer and fewer tv shows that have some sort of universal appeal or universal attention or even near universal attention what is the need to dissuade anyone from watching a minor show on showtime or you know, the vice channel or like whatever, you know, there's no, like, you're not argue, you're, you're arguing, you're, 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 you're boxing with ghosts, you know? I mean, there's no, there's, there's, there's no, no one is being forced to watch this thing. Even if the perception, I mean, no one's ever being forced to watch or read or whatever, but if there, but back, you know, if there's only three channels, yes. then, It's justifiable to come out and say, like, this tripe that NBC is serving you (laughs) is not deserving of your time, you know, or whatever. But it's but, you know, when there's an endless number of channels that is that are getting fewer and fewer eyeballs,
1: what's the point? Absolutely. And, And I think that's that's part of this, that the more the world fractures, the less, you know, sort of mainstream, you know, kind of collective experience we have, the harder it gets to do that. I absolutely believe that. Linsky also cites the no-context Twitter world that these hatchet jobs wind up surfacing in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It says, when a review goes viral now, most of the people reading it, provided they actually do read beyond the headline, will have no idea who the writer is. So he or she is reduced to the status of an H.M. Bateman caricature, the man who hates Shrek, the woman (laughs) who hates Ted Lasso. Thus, a negative piece is damned as clickbait by the angry people who are clicking on it, while ignoring all the positive pieces that the critic has mm-hmm. also turned in, well,
2: yeah, I mean, if you look at any time there's a subject like this trending on Twitter or basically anything trending on Twitter, if you go to the, you know, if you if you click on the subject, what you'll immediately see are Cs and Cs of people who are like, I see people are talking about how Shrek sucks. Well, here's my <laughs> point of view. You know, it's not a reaction even to the piece at all. It's a reaction to the hashtag about the piece. You know, yes, um,
1: Wait, but to go back to said your- Shrek sucks what you yeah, know like exactly. I, i'm in
2: but to go back to your point earlier about our friend Andy Greenwald he was able to take swings it shows he didn't like one because he's honest and intelligent but two because when, when he was dissenting on true detective he was doing that i think he did it in writing but he, but predominantly he was doing that on his podcast right and 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 especially on a podcast your presence your body of work is a known quantity, right? Your personality is a known quantity, and if you have a body of work that can back it up, as even in writing, in that era, he was he was known for the body of work. Then it's easy; it's more understandable to take it in context, right? And on the and on the podcast, you know, it, it, it those sorts of things can become almost a bit, right? It's just like oh, here we sure. go talking about the show you don't want to talk about again, you know, and that's and so it be it becomes a little, you know, crossfire and fun because of that. Yeah, um, the man who hates
1: Shrek is actually a character you can inhabit on a podcast. Or the man is. who hates t- woman who hates Ted Lasso, and that's funny.
2: It is, it is, and and then, but 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 separate from that, there's no there's no ambiguous man or woman in on a podcast. You know, I mean, unless the, the, mm-hmm. no no one very like a vanishingly small number of people would ever get access to any podcast by listening to a 15 second clip online or something like that. You know, like you 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 might be your first time listening to the podcast but you, but you subscribe to a podcast right yes. you are you become part of the i mean you become part of the family you know or the or the podcaster's become part of yours you know i mean you you understand who you understand the context of such criticism um and and yeah if you are Scott Tobias writing about Shrek and the Guardian um it's it's a totally different world because it's just the headline. I mean, the best case scenario is that there's a link there and that, but that, but, but, in, but on Twitter, very few, I mean, who who's going to click on that? They're both, they're just going to look at the picture and read the headline. And that's all they kind of want to know about it. Right. They'll read the, 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 the screenshot quotes that other people are posting about it. Right. I mean, posting from it, um, you know, you it's, it's definitely a, a very specific view. And unless, I mean, if you're not going to a, Specific periodical. If you're not reading somebody in the context of their work, or or or, or you because you follow them on Twitter, then y- there's no reason you would know the context of it. I think this the Tobias piece was actually really a funny one because I, frankly, agreed with a lot of his yes, points. That movie and, does suck, and I've and I've sort of and it actually reminded me of seeing it for the first time. I've seen it since, but I but I felt I've had a lot of those feelings if I didn't put them into sentences upon yeah. seeing it for the first time, but. I would but but as I'm reading it, I'm thinking this and also thinking I don't know if I would dedicate any amount of time to making this case online because what because I would rather do something different.
1: Right, which is the point, right? Yeah. And everybody's gonna get mad at me if I do this. I don't
2: even care about getting mad. I mean, the, listen, just, just, as we say, just as I was saying, we we have been present for a lot for some of this transition from criticism to connoisseurism or however you want to define it. We've also been present for I mean, like, you know, a lot the the handful of really great t- like hatchet jobs or or you know whatever takedowns in various of various things. Sometimes it's a fruit, you know, like whatever. But the, but with those <laughs> things, sur- when the ringer is published, things like that. A lot of times, I I've seen them. I've seen them birth. I mean, be given birth on on Slack. Right? Someone will just come yes. into Slack with a ridiculous. Usually, just in charity. Will come into Slack with a ridiculous <laughs> hot take. And then defend themselves against everybody. I mean just in a total put on, right? Just defend themselves, defend themselves, defend themselves. And then at some point, the editor will parachute in and be like, "Stop slacking. I want this piece on my desk tomorrow."
1: yeah, this is a piece,
2: yeah, exactly. and th- and and so that's how those things sometimes take shape. and but i and then when I read it online, I can't even engage with the negative reactions to it because I understand that it's deliberately provocative, and it's funny when someone's mad about it, right? Because it's yes. like it's so. It's it's just you know sometimes it can be so over the top or so transparently provocative, uh, trolling whatever. Um, so but but I guess that's that's a, a little bit of its own genre too.
1: But that's what's funny about that, and I would never ever speak ill of Justin Charity, whom we we know and love. But when I read pieces like "Against Avocados" or you know "Apple Suck," mm-hmm. basically that piece is. At, you're right. Those kind of pieces are absolutely written to be. Tongue in cheek, provocative, and trolly, but don't they, to some extent, r- you know, rely on bad faith readings of those pieces to get major traffic? Because you know, people online are going to take the bait, mm-hmm. and that's what's going to make that piece blow up. Like, oh, yeah, there's, not, there's sure. not enough of an audience that is like, "Ha, I appreciate the tongue in cheek quality of what you're doing, Mister Critic." Really, what you want is you want that audience, and then you want a whole bunch of people like. How dare you talk about avocados that way? Okay,
2: yes, yes, but and uh, this may be steering us way, of course, but as a con- as a connoisseur of the form, you know, as or just as a reader of reviews for our entire lives, mm-hmm. what's intriguing about those pieces is that they're they're it's a high wire act, right? It's like can you yes. get from this headline to a satisfying conclusion knowing that. You, knowing the, the, the stakes and like how kind of ridiculous this thing is, right? You want to see the performance. And to a certain extent, that relates back to the great well, it, hatchet jobs or even just negative reviews of the past century, which is to say it's actually not that hard to write a glowing review, right? You can say if you read a book. Are you and sure? You, no,
1: no, no. I mean, it. Can, I think those are actually harder than the hatchet job. Mm-hmm. I think with a,
2: with, but it's, but the best of them are high wire acts, right? It's like you, it's, it's diff, cause you really have to earn it. Once you make people mad, they're gonna read it, right? And you have to actually like have a basis for what you're saying. And you mm-hmm. have to do the research and, you know, like do the work and kind of get from Jonathan Franz and sucks all the way to, Jonathan Franzen still sucks at the end of the piece, but like you have, to, you have to. I, I just think it's <laughs> you really to, to covered me, the waterfront from yeah. Jonathan. No, Franzen I know, but like you got, he you still have sucks. to, you have to earn it, you know. And I think, I think that in some ways that can be like when I would read Dale Peck, there is a sentence by sentence sort of grandeur to it, and you would just like you could crack up from line to line. But if you're gonna make a, if you're really gonna critique a work of a major author, then you have to take the what made them great into account and everything else. You know, it's I, I do think it's easier. It, it, it's not. Not every positive review is easy, but I do think there is an easy way out, which is just like bullet point five things you really like about something and then just mm-hmm. be like another great work by Martin Scorsese or like whatever. You know, I mean, it's it's it, it can be a simpler form.
1: You mentioned knowing critics better, knowing critics in the old days, like the way we know podcast hosts now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Linsky in his piece uh, cites our Siskel and Ebert podcast. And the fact that, you know, knowing those guys meant that you would forgive them things when you disagreed with them. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, Roger Ebert, four stars for Dark City, right? You're like, Roger, I think Dark City is like a three or three and a half star movie. I think you're just a little too excited about this. But that's okay because I know you, I like you, I'm interested in what your taste is. What's interesting about that, the old critical world, is that these critics had powerful newspapers and magazines behind them that could back them up. Right. TV shows. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think to me, whenever I look at sports or, you know, any kind of journalism, what we're often talking about is power. And we're saying the Chicago Sun Times is a big newspaper and the TV show they're on is a big TV show. And that's what's giving you the stead to do this as opposed to the modern world where Mm -hmm. the journalist probably doesn't have as powerful a publication behind them. And by the way, when they're writing these pieces, I mean, it has got to be in some people's minds that I'm going to write a really nice piece about so-and-so and and that person is going to tweet it. And Mm -hmm. that is what is going to make the piece go viral or get a big audience. And that is what is going to allow me to write another story. Yeah. You know, the economy is just completely different and that sucks that that would be what it is, but there's no doubt that that's part of what it is. That so many of these things are written with an eye toward, you know, the way that I am. This piece is going to get read is for me to write something positive, and yeah. that's what's going to allow me to write another piece in this sucky journalistic economy we live in.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, listen, the the the, big, the most, the, the, the greatest response I ever got to anything I written by a large, large margin was in the very beginning of of the ringer. I wrote, you know, an appreciation of The Rock, just as like one of the undeniables, you know, he was just like The Rock is the greatest thing that ever happened. And it was the, the, the positioning was actually a little bit over deliberately over the top too. That was sort of the point. But when that, when I, when that was tweeted out, I don't know if it was retweeted by the, you know, The Rock's account or whatever, but just Every single response. And there were thousands were, well, not everyone, but the vast majority of them were people speaking directly to Dwayne Johnson the, as, if, as if he was reading the, the comments on my piece. Right. It was just like, Mr. Johnson, can you come to my kids prom? You know, like what? Like it was just crazy. And you do get that sort of reaction, right? I mean, it's just like people just for sure, right? If I, if that had been the rock sucks, it wouldn't have gotten nearly the attention and the attention that it gotten would have been like, I'm going to murder you. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a different, it's a, it is a really specific calculus. So yeah, I mean, that definitely happens. Um, but I do think also that you're dealing with an audience of your your audience for everything is fans now, right? I mean, and this is get he mm-hmm. gets this in the piece. Yes. When you, if you were to, you know, if you write, I mean, you know, pick your show, like whatever has any you know, relevance right now, Ted Lasso. If you, if you write a piece about Ted Lasso, the, the only people who are going to click on this piece are Ted Lasso fans, right? Nobody else cares about this. Nobody else care, is interested in reading a piece about Ted Lasso unless they've watched Ted Lasso. I mean, maybe there's a handful of people who watch it and hated it and are still and want some validation in their opinion right? But like, for the most part, even those people have their own things that they're fans of, their own things that they want to fill their time with, their, their own things that they care about. And those are the things that they're going to be interested about reading about online. If you watch Ted Lasso, because your significant other is into it, and you're just like, all right, I'm going to read a book through the second half of this. Then when you <laughs> pop online the next day, you're probably going to be ta- thinking about something else. You know, I mean, it's not, it, it's, I just don't think people, well, I mean, there certainly are people who go and seek out disappointments in life (laughs) but for the most part i think that people are finding things they love and they care about and you know they get their kicks by loudly defending it
1: online it's absolutely true and also what about the critics who set themselves up to write about ted lasso or something bigger like i'm your clearing house for ted lasso Mm -hmm. recaps talk opinions or bigger than that star wars mart whatever it is Mm mm-hmm What happens, right, is you set yourself up that way. You cultivate this audience of fans, this audience you're talking about that just wants to read about that single subject, essentially, or that's most of what they want to read. Then are you allowed not to like the thing you're writing about? Are you allowed to be like, hey, uh, the Bad Batch, it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. It was kind of a cartoon because sometimes doesn't the audience get really mad if you mm-hmm. say that and, you know, say, wait a second, I came here because we all love Ted Lasso and Star Wars. And you're telling me you only kind of love the most recent product of that universe. That's not what I signed up for. That is not what I want from you. And doesn't that discourage perhaps some nastier critical opinions?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's one obvious example of that, and that's Game of Thrones, right? I mean, there are people were made entire careers out of being Game of Thrones critics and podcasters and whatever else. Um And by the end of the show, I think the, the general consensus had turned on the show to the point where, like, you were allowed to just be to shit on it, even if you were, like, the go-to person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Mallory and Jason, who did it at The Ringer, were, you know, not huge fans of the last season, and I think they were open about that. Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair, I think she was pretty critical of it, too. But when you're this is part of the connoisseurism, you know, the appreciation culture. It's more about the people than it is about the art of the cri- the critique, right? So if you're, if you are, if it, this is Mal and Jason talking about Game of Thrones, or if it's David and Brian talking about, you know, Star Wars or whatever else, when we're going to have these conversations, we're, it's not just us shitting on whatever movie we just saw. You know, you find the things in it, even amidst the shit that you like. Right, So you can you can be the go to Game of Thrones person. You can say, you know, that episode wasn't that great, but you can still be like, look at all these Easter eggs, you know, or like, you know, connect to the
1: mythology. Let's let's tease out how what we learned about the world of whatever.
2: Yep, exactly. There's always things that you can, you know, it's just like everything else in life, man. I mean, if you're like, you know, at a really boring football game, you're going to start like getting you get your kicks by like loudly cheering ironically or like by you know by by staring at somebody in the crowd or just whatever i mean you you'll find other things to, to occupy your mind that's what people will do in criticism now too
1: yeah and by the way you'll let two or three years go by and then you'll go back and reassess the final season of the wire or the final season of game of thrones and, and welcome it back into the canon because <laughs> yeah, even though well, it sure. sucked at the time right we all do that thing mm-hmm. uh our old grantland teammate stephen hyden jumped in the comments Uh, on one of the tweets about the Linsky piece and said this re music criticism. I think it used to be more common for certain critics to review everything, even albums Mm -hmm. and genres they might not know much about. Now there are experts and enthusiasts for everything. So those people tend to review albums in their area of expertise. I remember when you and I were young Mm -hmm. and a star Wars movie would come out or a comic book movie before we had comic book movies, you Mm -hmm. know, every other month. Yeah. Do you remember how frustrated we used to get because there'd be some critic at the newspaper or at the magazine, but like this person doesn't get this at all. Like this person doesn't appreciate star Wars, whatever in the way I do, they just completely don't. And it was so frustrating that we we had Mm -hmm. to go to like, ain't it cool news or something to find somebody who actually was in the mythology. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that anymore. Um, But what is really funny about that is it has gone so far the other way that yes. now I find myself driven back to the generalist newspaper critic, uh, Tony Scott in the New York Times, uh, the New York Times TV critics, certainly their book critics, because I'm like, I want somebody who's coming at this without an investment in the mythology and in the fandom. Yeah, I actually want that critic now before i was stuck with that critic now that is like my favorite critic because i actually trust them to give me a review and actually pan something if they don't like it well and also what
2: uh, there there are so many other things available to you besides quote unquote criticism or reviews or whatever else right i mean if you if you are a diehard star wars fan you don't need to find i mean you you certainly can but you probably you know sated a lot of that that thirst by like just reading the fan blogs and the Twitter accounts up to the point, right? Like it doesn't need to be just the review of the movie. But and the and the Tony Scott review, which has always been an important, you know, the the like the New York Times movie reviews have always been an important part of the discourse. The Roger Ebert reviews when he was writing them, um, obviously like, you know, Pauline kale before him. I mean, they've always that's always been an important sort of tent pole in the discussion. And as someone who's if you're if it's something you're interested in, you want to know what they say. So you can, you know, sort of react to it to to, to sort of understand, even if it's a dissenting point of view, what it is, if it's a positive, you feel great about it, you know, but it is, but in a lot of ways, it's a totally different point of view. It's, it is an outsider point of view, even if Tony Scott can write with a better eye towards you know wh- whatever he saw at the film festival last month than most other people in the world there's going to be some things that that he still treats as an outsider and when you're a generalist even within a specific genre you can be a, gen- a generalist you're going to be yep. a little bit of an outsider on everything that is how the world is changed. i mean you and i both know There's n- the world writing on the writing for the internet is so much harder than it was writing in print and because not only does like is is all of the information available to everybody right it's like the barrier for entry is so much lower mm-hmm. a music reviewer in 1985 presumably spent more time listening to music and having her and and having access probably to like office music libraries or home music libraries that none of the readers had any access to right
1: yeah. Um, oh yeah. And it was, and the whole thing was, do you have all these, yeah. Do you have all these CDs and discs in your house that you yeah, can go you, back and listen and, and reference?
2: Yeah. And you don't, you don't. And so you would just take them at their word, right? Yeah. If you're like, oh, I don't remember, even if, it, if, if you thought you disagreed with them, you would just assume that they have the, the you know, they're right and you're wrong. Um, that, and now. Not only does everybody have access, there's no, the barrier for entry is so low in terms of just n- the knowledge base. All you have to do is pull up Spotify or whatever else, and you can YouTube and and you can hear all the music. You can hear everything that's being that is being compared to. But also, like, it, there are people who one are going to spend more time than every writer with this stuff, right? I mean, people who are mono, like you know, monomaniacally monomani- obsessed with a certain subject that will know more than everything you write about, and they are present online as well as part of the discourse. Like they're, you know, they're replying to the tweets about your story. So it's, it can be, it can be like paralyzing at times to be a writer. And yes, it's, 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 uh, you know, the idea of the generalist who is good at above all other things, reviewing of like critiquing is still incredibly compelling. Um, but it's, it's hard to imagine a world now or in the future where there's more than a small handful of those people. You know, it's like you have to sort of earn your position as the critic of note,
0: Mm -hmm. you know,
2: and then, and to sort of, I mean, then to a smaller degree, it's like everybody with a blog, which doesn't really exist anymore, but you know what I mean? It's like anybody with a personal outlet on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else, there's a lot of people who have, who are generalists and have opinions about everything and don't need to like everything. But that's like a personal outlet right the, the idea of that being a, a a position with a national platform i mean that might largely be behind us
1: i think so it's just it's the shrinking number of generalist outlets you know where where are you going to go to do that now the new yorker new york times washington post is that going to exist at local newspapers it does to a point but they're shrinking, right? And and those people in Fort Worth, Texas, can read the New York Times. So that do they need? Is the Fort Worth Star Telegram going to bother with a fully loaded, you know, music critic and movie critic and TV critic? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting. I do want to add one more point, uh, and and in here I'm putting both hands on the electrified rails. But as a lot of us transition from writers, first and foremost, to writers and podcasters. Mm-hmm. and need as part of our podcasting diet guests to come on our podcast, often the same guests who made the art or did the thing or were the yeah. sports commentator. Isn't there a danger that we start to pull a punch here and there? Maybe not dramatically so, but you know, take a couple miles off the fastball, to use one more sports metaphor, because we want that person to come on our podcast which has a good, you know, which then reflects well on us or drives traffic to the pot or whatever it is. Certainly certainly, an idea worth considering.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does feel like you have... I mean, this may be a small point in the argument, but it does also feel like as a reviewer, as a critic, as whatever our rules are doing this sort of thing, that you may have more power than you had back then. I don't think anybody that gave a lesser dylan album a bad review had any question about whether or not he was going to be financially vi- like he was going to have money you know to live a year from then right this I mean, is if you- D-
1: dylan or the critic we're talking about
2: no the dylan you know i like i don't <laughs> I, i'm not sure that you, but that's a good that's a question that, i mean that's a good point too i do think that you know that that there's a humanity that's a kind of imbued upon a lot of the people that you review now both but but bet- both because of celebrities being sort of ever-present in media and and you sort of know them in different ways and everything else like we might know or re- used to have known a reviewer, but also just in terms of like this kind of stark humanity of it, man. You know, it's like even if you hate something, you're just like, now listen, I don't want Brian Curtis to lose his job, right? But I maybe mean, his podcast <laughs> isn't great, but like how much time am <laughs> I going to spend... Like, what if his employer hears me and they're just like, you know what? You're right. Brian, you're fired. Like, nobody wants that. I don't hate anything that much, you know? Yeah, and they-
1: <laughs> it'd have to be really bad, you know? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> By the way, uh, speaking of hatchet jobs, in the baffler, Dale Peck, the aforementioned Dale Peck is out with a big critical piece about Andrew Sullivan. Who says the hatchet job is dead, David? The exception that proves the rule, maybe.
2: There's one more thing, and I almost hesitate to mention it, but if you're talking about people coming on your podcasts and the way that might skew your review of something, you also have to consider the potential for future employment with the people that you're reviewing and or Mm. the people that they're associated with,
1: right? Okay.
2: There is a certain comfort that comes from being the film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. And when when you become an institution, you can feel comforted that you will probably remain an institution for as long as you want to keep doing it, right? It's slightly different if you want to just completely go after a public figure who may or may not have be an investor in some place that would want to hire you in the future. Or, no, or right. they might have a personal relationship. There's so many, I mean, listen, it's one thing to take, to do a Martin Scorsese takedown. You probably won't be crossing paths as Martin Scorsese, but if you wanted to do a, no, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you wanted to do a the barstool sports takedown, and you you basically have to just acknowledge I'm never going to work for Barstool Sports, right? You may or may not want to, but like as just a, as just an option. I mean, it's just an example. And those things I think probably, you know, affect the way people right now too.
1: It all comes back to power, right? And the stability mm-hmm. of the profession. If journalists feel powerful, supported, like they're going to have a job in two weeks. Yeah. You are much more willing to be a journalist mm-hmm. in, in, in extremists. I want to talk to you, David, about Donald Trump's career as a sportscaster, about the NFL giving gambling a big hug, and maybe the weirdest use of oral history we have yet encountered. But first, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always, always gratefully received. Uh, in sports news, David Derek Jeter. The Yankees shortstop, former Yankees shortstop, was officially inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame this week. Mm -hmm. People seized on this quote from Yankees manager and former Jeter teammate Aaron Boone. Derek was the guy who just said, give me the ball. Always wanted the ball and just played the game with a ton of confidence. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, I don't think you need to demand the ball in baseball. It's in the rules that the pitcher (laughs) has to throw it towards you. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks to Terry McDonald. What interested me about that is that we are now just mixing and matching sports cliches. Yes, exactly. Like, give me the rock. That does sound like something a noble player in basketball would do or even football would do, but <laughs> you actually just cannot do that in baseball.
2: Uh, to me, Derek Jeter was the kind of player who was never afraid to go over the middle, no matter what the defense was doing. You know, he was always there in the fourth quarter <laughs> when the clock was counting down oh.
1: to help his team win. Yeah, yeah, he he really was, wasn't he? Never mm-hmm. afraid, never afraid to take the big shot. Yeah, exactly. Gary Jeter. Thanks to Terry McDonald for that one. I guess pitchers. They do say that about pitchers. He demanded the ball every five days or he took the right, took the mound every five days, but <laughs> so,
2: still, doesn't so like quite
1: work with shortstops. In US Open tennis action, David the men's number 3 seed, Stefanos Tsitsipas lost to the Spanish player Carlos Alcaraz. It was an overworked <laughs> Twitter joke to write that he could not escape from Alcaraz. Yes. Thanks to Mike Miller. I think uh, Carlos Alcaraz will probably be uh, hearing that very badly strained pun for the rest of his career. Yeah, is there, finally,
2: wait, is it if he if he continues to be good. If right? Carlos Alcaraz is the next Pete Sampras. Is there a point where we have to pre, like
1: retire those puns? Yes. I, I think uh, the time is right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we can, yes, we can wait for a couple of uh, major victories if you want to. Finally, this one, David, from last night's NFL season opener, where the Dallas Cowboys, of course, lost in the closing seconds to Tom <laughs> Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. NBC, I don't know if you caught this, showed a shot of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell <laughs> in his suite. And he was accompanied by Ed Sheeran. Some good jokes on Twitter about that. Showing up at the arcade for my 10th birthday party with my dad. (laughs) Ed Sheeran looks like Roger Goodell's son who didn't want to run the family business and works as a bartender instead. Uh, This was a good one. I don't need any more reasons to dislike Roger Goodell. And sort of the inverse, just what I needed, another reason to hate Ed Sheeran. (laughs) Thanks to John Spalding. If you seized on a two-second clip on Thursday Night Football, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week.
0: This episode
1: is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff,
1: a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
0: you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Adidas.
1: It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. All right, in the notebook dump, David, let's hit a few of these quickly. This was from listener Odaly. Thoughts on Donald Trump having an alt feed to call the fights this weekend. Is this peak podcast taking over sports? If you've not heard this, former president Donald Trump and Don Jr are going to do one of those alternative commentaries for the boxing match this weekend between 58-year-old Evander Holyfield and MMA guy Vitor Belfort do we have an opinion about Donald Trump providing an alternate audio feed
2: i got to admit i'm more intrigued by this than i probably would have been if it was just a you know abstract right uh because i honestly don't know i can't even make a joke about what i think he's going to say i i don't know if he's going to give even a passing effort at calling the fight or discussing what's on the screen in front of him i don't know you know and i and i and i'm not sure what it would sound like aside from you know his stories about meeting the fighters or something i don't know what he would say if he did try um but i also don't I can't quite fully imagine him just doing like a campaign speech over the fight. Like, I, I just don't, I don't, I, I I don't, I can't quite imagine it.
1: You think he's going to do the Troy Aikman thing where he says, you're absolutely right, Don Jr. After Don makes a perception. Well, that's just it.
2: Presumably Don Jr. is there to be the sort of, you know, the person who knows who probably has more information on the fighters or on the 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 fight game or whatever else we know he's a fight fan <laughs> <The> fight game <laughs> presumably he would be in that role but i cannot in a million years imagine no. pre- former president donald trump ceding the floor to his son for any strength of time i mean any length of time so no. I, I don't i don't zero know zero chance
1: i am i am betting i the odds are 1 million to 1 that there will be perceptive boxing commentary on the Donald Trump alternative feed. And speaking of which, Jim Lampley, legendary boxing announcer who was going to call this fight, has bailed. Uh, I don't know that we know that it was directly wow. linked to Donald Trump emerging as the alternate commentary, but I think this will go down as the first time a, an announcer, when faced with somebody doing the announcer's job, which is the tension behind all of this, has actually mm-hmm. been like, goodbye.
2: Oh, you think it was related to, like, we, we now we're now we're going to have two booths. And so he's like, no, you will not have Well, me I
1: think it's probably more like Donald Trump being in the second booth. We think. Again, allegedly. We don't know that. By the way, love yeah. this uh, statement from Donald Trump. I love great fighters and great fights. I look forward to seeing both this Saturday night and sharing my thoughts ringside. You won't want to miss this special event. Doesn't that sound like a press release Donald Trump would have released in, like, 1988? Mm-hmm. Like when there was is a is he actually his... going to be
2: a ringside?
1: Yeah, apparently. Doesn't that he that wants feels a good like a real view.
2: security issue?
1: He wants to make sure he can uh, see the angles. Uh, he does a Donald Trump doesn't do remote broadcasting. Yeah, like so many of the announcers today. Another one from the sports media pile. I got this press release from the NFL. Uh, it reads thusly: Host Rachel Bonetta, formerly host mm. of the gambling show on FS1, has joined the NFL Media Group. In her role, Bonetta will contribute and lead legalized sports betting-focused content. What a phrase on NFL Network as well as the NFL's digital platforms such as NFL.com and the NFL app. Rachel Bonetta, David, brings gambling to the NFL. What do we think of that? Well,
2: I mean, Rachel Bonetta is just an—I an, mean, just a pure talent, right? I mean, everything that she does is she's very, very good at her job, um, and obviously has made. Swords betting uh a part of her brand it's, it feels dirty to say it that way but a part of her um part of her brand of you know something that something that she is known for over the past several years um talking about high wire acts earlier i i respect that nfl press release for being as artful and dodging any of the sort of moral issues implicit in this uh, as, as they, as it was <laughs>
1: legalized um, sports, betting focused content Like yeah, we just want to make sure we're not, we're not endorsing gambling here. we're just legalize sports betting. is is that is, we're going out of our way to say that
2: she's sort of a perfect fit for what the, for the NFL network, because at the end of the day, the number one thing is to, is not to, not to take on any, previously prevalent moral issues about gambling about betting they're not they're, they want to avoid those altogether they hope that they never come up right that's mm-hmm. i mean it's, it's 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 no no one's going to sort sort of say even mention the fact that public perception is turned or that the law is turned or anything else we're just going to pretend none of that other stuff ever happened and i think that there's a lot of people who have sort of risen to prominence over the past decade or so as voices in the sort of sports betting world who wouldn't be as desirable a choice for the NFL network because they don't, they're probably trying to avoid the sheen of gambling altogether. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's legalized sports betting. It's, um, this is almost like WWE calling wrestling sports entertainment. It's like, we're just going to put our own little spend, or uh, put, 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 put a different name on this and, uh, and and hope that nobody notices that we're talking about the same thing. I mean, Rachel Benetta is, is, well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like we're just keep calling back. She's not a generalist per se, but she can do, I mean, she can do anything, right? The fact that she is a part, that she's kind of an accepted part of the sports gambling world now makes her a perfect fit for this job because, because she will not be mistaken for whatever the cliche of, you know, somebody who's spent 36 hours in the sports book losing money, you know, or, or anything else like that. I mean, she's, she's, she's
1: not Jimmy the Greek.
2: She's not Jimmy the Greek, and there was a, and Jimmy the Greek makes a lot of sense on a national broadcast when everything else is buttoned up, right? But when you're the NFL, especially if you, this isn't ESPN or Fox Sports making a decision, this is the NFL Network that, who has to be the last bastion of you know uh, uh, opposing or or whatever. I mean, uh, the last bastion of goodness in the sports gambling world because if it's perceived that they're overly interested in it, then that raises all of these questions about about whether or not, I mean about their involvement in it right so it's I mean she's a proper journalist and it's good to have a journalist in that role and she's you know of she's sort of independent enough uh that it seems like that you know it's it's she's independent and she's appealing enough that it's you know this is somebody you would want to see this isn't just somebody with like a dog in the fight or a horse in the race or, a, you know, a, 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 yeah. an
1: illegal investment in it, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a it, horse in the race. You you got as meta- metaphorically closer to gambling yeah, content right. there. Yeah. Um, I don't think we fight dogs for money anymore.
2: It is it's, interesting, though, because it's like if this it's almost like if you can get Rachel Benetta in sort of under the wire, then we can just never have this conversation again.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Like if they,
2: if if they, if they brought somebody, if they brought Jimmy, the, you know, the reincarnation of Jimmy, the Greek onto the NFL network, people would have them. There'd be a minor tizzy or maybe a major tizzy. People would yeah. you know, whatever. But the, like, this is the death knell of this whole conversation about whether or not sports betting should be allowed and whether or not the league should, you know, should be affiliated with it or not. And if, you know, if, if the NFL can hire Rachel Benetta and if this sort of goes off without too much of a hubbub, then I think this, 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 is the, this is the end of the conversation. And, and, you know, thank God.
1: Listener Charlie Gilmer has further evidence that oral histories are taking over the world. Uh, you know, Todd Haynes, David, the director who did Far From Heaven, uh, Mildred yeah. Pierce uh, fairly recently, has a new documentary about the Velvet Underground coming out, which played at Cannes and is going to be released, released next month. Uh, I want you to listen to this description of the documentary. This is a documentary movie, okay? Directed with the era's avant-garde spirit by Todd Haynes, this kaleidoscopic oral history combines exclusive interviews with dazzling archival footage. Now, wait a second. Unless I am completely misunderstanding what is happening here, we had a totally fine term for what Todd Haynes has made about Velvet Underground. The term was documentary film. Yeah. Or just documentary. But now... The oral history brand has become so ever present, so so clickable, you might say, David, that we are calling a documentary an oral history. So that yeah. means anything in which people speak is now an oral history. That that is, is it, that is Rachel Benetta's <laughs> new show will be an oral history wait, wait, of wait. gambling.
2: I'm going. I, I want to try to make the case for this. Okay, it's, it is it is absolutely inane. But if you if you felt compelled to distinguish between a documentary that was entirely primary source interviews with the people that mattered and a documentary that had a Morgan Freeman voiceover carrying you through half the story <laughs> and like archival news footage and whatever else,
1: why do I have to choose between these two things Please. <laughs> yeah. Please continue. if
2: you wanted to make it clear, no, this is not just another I don't know what the other thing would be. this is not another whatever voiceover documentary that takes you through uh, you know, the velvet underground's career. This is actually an interview with everybody that matters who is available to talk. And it's only that. Well, I guess there's that, that is a, that is a significant distinction if it mat. but if it matters, but it's, it probably doesn't.
1: You know what that sounds like to me? A documentary. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yes, that's what that interviews
1: with the participants retelling the story of something that happened that. Yes, that is a documentary. No, I know.
2: But maybe the problem is the documentary has gotten too has gotten too ambiguous over the years. You know, I mean, like, listen, everybody who's listening to this is like gone to the documentary section of whatever streaming app they're on and pushed a button and realized they were watching like an episode of investigation discovery. You know, (laughs) and they're like, wait, this (laughs) this is not a documentary by any definition that I'm familiar with. I guess it is. by you know, but. I think documentary in general has gotten a little bit too fuzzy.
1: Yeah, Netflix era, it really is. Uh, everything is a documentary, but I, 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 I'm drawing the line, man. I'm done. Yeah, the, the,
2: all those like kooky conspiracy theory documentaries that are on YouTube yeah. that have actually made their way onto Amazon and Netflix and other streaming platforms, where it's like that one guy with the robot voice talking over like <laughs> appropriated news footage or something. Yeah. Like That's. Like that's, is that a documentary?
1: You know it how is. I feel about all this. The documentaries in the long form podcast where it's like someone got murdered. That's the, <laughs> that's the plot of every one of them. Hey, hell, you can I hate those so much you can call them oral history for all I care. <laughs> uh, our only in journalism word of the day, David, comes from Justin Michael. It's a really good one. I don't think we've had this one yet. Defanged. Oh. Defanged. There's no... Well, there's there are very few people on earth that have used the word defanged in casual conversation.
2: Yeah, I think that's. But I a defanged
1: right. federal agency is something you often read about in journalism. hmm. Thank you to Michael for that. It's time for David Shoemaker. Guess is the strained pun headline. Yeah. The last time we did this, which I can't even remember the day uh, we did the Bears quarterback situation. And the headline was right to bear arms question mark
2: it's like sometimes when i'm doing art for the the ringer.com if there's a more conceptual piece so they're like yeah just you know just it's not just players facing off or whatever i'll keep trying and trying and i don't i can't figure out the right angle to make it look like a great like new york times op-ed illustration or whatever or opinion opinion page illustration i can't figure it out and then at some point i just go you know what i'm just going to take every single element that is a, that i've been working with and put it on a black background and just sort of move things around. And like, there it is. Like everything's there. It's fine. That's what I feel about the right to bear arms. It's like, it's a pun (laughs) because there are two puns. (laughs) You know what? Yes. Like the sentence, I'm not sure. It's all there. Everything's there in front of you. We'll accept it.
1: (laughs) Today's headline comes from Jay Fisher. It's a funny NBA story from the Minneapolis star tribute. Uh, I'll read it to you, David Timberwolves coach, coach, Chris Finch. Said Wednesday that Anthony Edwards, former number one overall pick, has grown. By that, Finch didn't only mean Edwards is improving his game, he meant the 20 year old guard has actually gotten taller from the time the Wolves drafted him in November from around six foot four to approximately six foot six. Okay, a basketball player is officially tall. What was the Minneapolis Star Tribune strain pun headline? Basketball
2: growth spurt um, above the rim. Uh,
1: uh,
2: tall, tall,
1: uh, tall is kind of the tall, word we're uh, pivoting tall, off of here.
2: Tall, oh, tall, don't lie. Or tall, like, don't lie.
0: Is that right? Oh, you got yeah. it.
1: Bang. He is David Shoebaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We, uh, As we roll into this weekend, invite you to listen to our 9-11 podcast interviews with James B. Stewart and Tom Juno about pieces they wrote after the terror attacks 20 years ago. We are back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.